Coming up on Stu Does America, the country will soon be open for business. Ah, just before, I was going to start really working out at home, too. So typical. We'll uncover the one thing America needs to do to fire up the economy again. A major part of that economy is energy. Author Robert Bryce uh, joins us to figure out how to make sure your ventilator isn't powered by a windmill. And David Harris Jr. is here. Uh, he's going to dig into President Trump's handling of the pandemic so far. What was great? What could use improvement? Can Jim Acosta be more annoying? Thanks for watching and occasionally listening to my ridiculous take on the world every single night. If you haven't yet, find the nearest subscribe button and click it. On YouTube, they have the fancy little bell. You can click that and it'll give you a heads up whenever we post a new video. Also, take a second now to throw us a rating and a review. It helps other people find the show, which justifies my employment. And become an ultra-sexy, important, big-time Blaze TV Executive Platinum subscriber. Basically the same as a normal subscription, except you get to say you're an Executive Platinum subscriber. Mm. Head to blazetv.com slash stew and sign up for more excellent conservative content that you'll know what to do with. Oh, and toss in the promo code stew to get 30 bucks off and let my bosses know, you know, you like this stupid show. To paraphrase the New York Times, we will not be talking about coronavirus today with the exception of all the times we talk about coronavirus today. Stu does America. Hmm. Can you hear that? Let the music phase down. Can you hear it? Can you hear it? It's way off in the distance, but maybe you can pick it up too. It's the slightest sound of optimism. It's mostly inaudible to the human ear, but I think it's out there, or it could just be a new rat infestation. I mean, there's not a lot of people working here. I don't know if anyone's taking care of that stuff right now. Kind of hard to tell the difference between the sounds. But let's choose to believe there's a little bit of optimism out there, even though I keep seeing rats scamper by the studio. The light at the end of the tunnel comes from a few signs that we're flattening out the curve, which gets us to the real pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, the thing we're all searching for in this crisis, never having to hear the phrase flatten the curve ever again. Over Easter weekend, we saw the total deaths drop to their lowest level in what seems like forever, but was actually just one week. Before we go on with the optimism, let's pause for a passing scampering rat. It is uh, hard to tell how meaningful the drop in death count is yet. Why? Because reporting on deaths seems to lag on the weekends, which is a bizarre thing, but it actually seems to be true. So Sunday and Monday seem to mysteriously get lower than the rest of the week. This leads to a little bit of false optimism, and then you're overrun with killer rats. The five days leading up to Sunday averaged 1,936 deaths per day. The weekend reporting dropped it to 1,532, a 21% decrease. We saw sharp increases after previous weekends, so I'm really hoping we don't see that today and tomorrow. Anything less than 2,000 today and tomorrow, I'm taking as a positive. Don't screw with my mood. Anyway, back from the rat infestation here for a second. Let's go back to the optimism. States are announcing plans to make plans to plan on planning to open up the economy a little bit. At least that's the plan. So what does the plan look like? What has to happen before we go back to normal life again? There will be a lot of central planning and councils staffed with experts that will come up with their PowerPoint presentations outlining the specifics. Some of that will be important. Some of it will be a total waste of time. But I've boiled it all down for you and can now exclusively reveal the one thing we need to do to return to some level of normalcy. Are you ready? Get out your notepads. Make people believe they aren't going to die. It's pretty much it. 
make people believe they aren't going to die. I don't mean lie to them. I don't mean give them false hope. I mean improve the situation enough so that people feel they can go back to doing normal things without the significant risk of imminent death. Hey, Bob, you going to the bar? No, I don't want to die. Basically try to stop that conversation from happening. Too much to ask? Going too far? We've been sort of stuck in this nonsensical loop of discussion about whether the government should have kept the economy open or shut everything down. And sure, I think there's some value in that as a thought experiment and as a way of testing the limits of the debate. But it's not reality. The government didn't shut the economy down and the government couldn't have kept the economy open. In this country, at least, the people lead the government, not the other way around. Trump put the 15 days to stop the spread into effect on March 16th. But the Masters was canceled on March 14th. The Boston Marathon and Broadway on March 13th. The NHL and the Major League Baseball and the first NCAA tournament cancellations happened on March 12th. The MLS season was canceled on March 12th as well, which is one of the only good things that have come of this. And the NBA season, of course, canceled on March 11th. I went to a Dallas Mavericks game just a few days before they canceled the season. Here's Mavs owner Mark Cuban talking to Chris Wallace about when he will send his workers back. Treasury Secretary Mnuchin said this week he thinks the economy will be back open for business in May. Do you think it'll be that soon? And how will you decide when to send your people back to work? I mean, it's semantics. Will it be open 24 hours a day? No. Will it we, will we open some doors and take some baby steps? Yes. How will I decide? It's very simple. When the scientists say it's safe for my employees to come back to work, that's when I'll feel confident enough to let them go back to work make people believe that they aren't going to die. The NBA was the first sports league to cancel, but even before that, Coachella, which I know I had tickets to, canceled on March 10th, and South by Southwest canceled on March 6th. All of these private businesses, with millions and millions and billions, in some cases, of dollars on the line, closed their businesses and doors before there were federal government recommendations asking them to do it. It wasn't about the government. They decided they wanted to keep their players alive. They wanted to keep their fans alive. They wanted to keep their artists, their workers, themselves alive. And they also realized that a lot of their fans wouldn't show up even if they did hold the events anyway. Why? Because they couldn't honestly make them believe they weren't going to die. This is all pretty basic. J.D. Vance posted open uh, table data looking at the foot traffic for bars and restaurants in Ohio. And keep in mind, they didn't close down bars and restaurants in Ohio until March 16th. From March 5th through March 8th, you saw a drop off of about 8% of uh, foot traffic from the same days a year earlier. Not massive, but remember, the average profit margin for a bar or restaurant is between 3 and 5%. You lose 8% of your foot traffic, you're already risking going into the red. So 8%, 13%, 6%, 6%, about an 8% average there. From March 9th through the 11th, the drop-off more than doubled to 19%. In fact, it was 19% every day uh, through the the 11th. And then from the 12th to the 15th, the 12th was 29%, 13th, 37%, 14th, 51%, 15th, a 51% drop-off, 51%. These places lost more than half of their foot traffic before any government shutdown happened. People don't want to die. To get people back into restaurants, you have to make people believe they aren't going to die. 
The other side of this is actually pretty interesting, too. Sweden has been used as an example of what we could have done as they are reportedly keeping things open and going for herd immunity. Just ignore the Swedish health minister who said, quote, we have never had a strategy for herd immunity. (laughs) They're not doing that, but they're keeping some schools open. Gatherings are limited to 70 instead of hour 10. There are differences. This is a little bit more open. We don't know how it's going to turn out yet. Their disease numbers are not looking all that wonderful at the moment. Regardless, neither are their economic forecasts. They look just as terrible as ours with our shutdown. And unemployment is also above the Great Recession in Sweden. And GDP forecasting uh, is looking at a major drop there as well. The economy is going to suck as long as people think the result of their fun night out might be death. Make people believe they're not going to die. Here's the thing. If we think we're going to die, we're not going to concerts or bars. And I'm not sending my kid to the mega germ factory known as a trampoline park either, regardless of whether the government says I'm allowed to. And the reverse is true as well. When we start thinking it's safe, we're going to start going to concerts and bars and trampoline parks again, regardless of what the government says. This is America. The government follows us, not the other way around. So how do we make people believe they aren't going to die? These go from the easiest and shortest term to the more difficult and longer term. Starting off, we need testing. This includes everything from expanding the current testing, which exploded from near zero to six figures very quickly, but has plateaued recently. It includes rapid tests that appear to be right around the corner and can help expand testing much more widely. It includes antibody tests, which can show if you've already had COVID-19. And at its, most, at its most basic level, honestly, it includes getting your temperature taken all over the place. Uh, if someone at a restaurant asks you to bend over to do that, just call the authorities because that's not a good sign. Next, we need masks. Now, masks aren't going to make you feel very normal either, but it will help you to get out in the world a little more. I don't want to wear a mask, but as they become more available, we can use them for travel and public spaces. Even uh, if you had to wear a mask, it would be nice to have the option to go to your favorite store again. Unfortunately, I don't think you can wear a mask at the gym, so I will have to take another decade off. It's unbelievable. Everything gets in my way. Also, capitalism is going to work wonders here. Uh, We are going to have designer masks in no time. Plus masks that make you inhale like the scent of birthday cake and probably masks that will change your voice into Darth Vader. Everything is on the table. This is capitalism. Next up, in the medium term, treatment. Maybe it's hydroxychloroquine. Maybe it's not. But we don't need a cure. All we need is the ability to take a person who's at a 10 out of 10, struggling for their life, about to go on a ventilator, and back them off to an 8 out of 10. People live and work through the flu because they don't feel like it's going to spiral out of control and end with them in the ICU. There are four treatments for the flu, and one of them will usually push off the worst consequences. We will deal with getting sick as long as we have a better chance of recovery than most alcoholic celebrities. And finally, the long-term goal, a vaccine. People usually say this is like 12 to 18 months off, but that is pretty hopeful. We were never able to get a vaccine for SARS after the initial scare faded away along with the financial backing. We still don't have one for HIV. We may never get a COVID-19 vaccine. I'm hopeful that we will. Honestly, if it means I get my dine in movie theaters back, I will stick an arm with whatever needle Bill Gates has in his ashtray. I don't even care. Each one of these things uh, is going to give us a little more room to stretch our legs. All of this sucks, but we need to make the best of it. The shutdown has given the country a little time to rev up the engine, 
get resources ready and form a full plan. But it's going to end pretty soon, whether the government wants it to or not. The full stay at home order is quickly passing its shelf life for effectiveness, not to mention the American tolerance for it. Eventually, we will get back to normal. But first, we need to make people believe they aren't going to die. You've heard me talk about how important it is to have a VPN. And now that a lot of you are working from home, it's even more important to choose a VPN you trust. Now, I like to do research on my sponsors, and I only recommend brands uh, that to my listeners that I actually believe in. And I can say with full confidence, ExpressVPN is the best VPN on the market. It's true. Number one, they don't log your data. It's big. Uh, a lot of cheap ones will take your data. They'll sell it to other companies. It's a nonsense. They develop a technology called Trusted Server that makes it impossible for their servers to log into any of your info. Uh, also, speed. You know, you're bouncing things around. A VPN is, you know, it's built to bounce, bounce uh, you know, whatever they do in the magical internet tubes uh, to make sure that you, are, uh, you have your privacy. Well, a lot of times that costs you speed. Uh, a lot of them will slow your connection down. They'll make your device sluggish. ExpressVPN does not do that. The speeds are as fast as you need them to be. And when you connect to servers even thousands of miles away, you could still stream HD quality videos with no lag. Uh, Something else uh, that sets ExpressVPN apart from other VPNs is how easy it is to use. You know how you have to be like a computer, you know, scientist to be able to pull this off. You open up the uh, app, you click connect, and you're done. Uh, It's very easy. Even I could do it. And it's not just me saying this. It's Wired, CNET, The Verge, many other tech journals are saying ExpressVPN is the number one VPN in the world. So protect yourself with a VPN that I use, that I trust. Go to expressvpn.com slash stew today to get an extra three months free and a one-year package. It's expressvpn.com slash stew, expressvpn.com slash stew to learn more. Once the COVID-19 pandemic finally settles, whenever that will be, my prediction is the year 6718, but I'm not sure exactly. We got to have a lot of housekeeping to do at that point. We're going to emerge from our homes into a messy world, and it's not always going to be obvious how to fix all the broken parts. One thing we have not really heard a lot about in the middle of this is what the uh, pandemic uh, will do to the energy sector. Author Robert Bryce is here. His latest book, A Question of Power, Electricity, and the Wealth of Nations. It's on my quarantine reading list. I'm excited to get into it. Robert, thanks for coming on the program. Happy to be with you, Sue. You know, it's interesting. Uh, one of the things you talk about, you've talked about recently, is uh, Indian Point, which is a nuclear power facility. I know this guy. My grandparents lived right down the road from it, so every time we'd go out, we'd always see this, and it was always fascinating to me as a kid. Um, and it, it was always talked about as this like dangerous thing that's down the road, this scary thing. I love this quote from Andrew Cuomo, uh, who says um, when he was trying to plant, the, when he was going to uh, uh, close the plant, he said, "New Yorkers can sleep a little better." Which might be true, technically, because they might have less lighting. It might be dark all the time. Um, I'm, I'm interested to see how, because this is, it's an interesting moment with electricity. We take it for granted. But here we are in the middle of a pandemic when you need a ventilator to run. It's pretty damn important. Well, exactly right, Stu. And it's a point that I make in my book. I, I was lucky enough to visit Indian Point in uh, 2018 um, and walked through the facility. It covers one square mile, uh, one square kilometer. Um, it's just a remarkable bit of engineering and architecture and, and innovation. Uh, it was built, or the building began there in 1956, the same year Eisenhower launched the interstate highway system. And yet now it's being closed down really for political reasons, and it's being 
being closed down when New York is especially dependent on the electric grid and you have hospitals full of patients that need absolutely reliable electricity. Yeah, you know, it is fascinating to see that, especially in the middle of this moment where we see what happens when you don't have the things that you need. Um, One of the debates that's gone on since the beginning of coronavirus has been this idea, this this debate between the virus itself and the economy. And how do you prioritize one and, and, and fight the other? And I think one of the things that's been missing is the economy is a terrible word for what we're talking about. What we're talking about is civilization. You've you've really in your book talked about how this really boils down to access to reliable electricity. And it's so true because, you know, the word as we summarize it with economy, what we really mean is human civilization, don't we? Exactly. And that's it. That's the main point in in my new book, A Question of Power. Um, by the way, you don't have to read it. You just have to buy it. Um, <laughs> it's available available on Amazon, BN.com, all your favorite booksellers. Um, but I, I traveled all over the world, went to India, Iceland, Lebanon, Puerto Rico, Colorado, New York. What did we find? Well, it's that this is the essential commodity to modernity, that no matter where you go in the world, what is the difference between the rich and the poor, between the healthy and the sick, it's electricity availability. And one of the key points in the book, one of the key facts in the book is that there are more than 3 billion people in the world today who are living in places where average electricity consumption is less than what's used by my kitchen refrigerator. I mean, wow. a thousand kilowatt hours per year is what my fridge uses. It's not a fancy refrigerator. I got it at Home Depot. It's a nice refrigerator. But you have th- more than three billion people in the world today use less electricity than an appliance. So we don't even think another thing. You know, we don't we don't even think about it. But this is the key to inequality. It's a key about you're concerned about climate change. You're concerned about women's rights, uh, girls' rights. Electricity is the key to all of those. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting point, and I don't think it's, it's, it's uh, considered uh, all that often. And I think an undercover part of what we're currently going through is how the developing world is going to be able to respond to this pandemic, too. You know, it's, it's easy for us to talk about how many cases we have when we, you know, there's tons of countries on, on Earth who basically aren't testing anyone. It's, this is going to ravage through their communities because they have really no ability to fight it because they haven't been able to build up wealth. I mean, I think that the subtitle of your book is really interesting because it is fundamental to uh, improving the human experience. Absolutely. And one of the things, something I thought about today was what is going to happen when African countries or uh, South Asian countries where electricity is scarce um, and expensive, what is going to happen in those countries where their health systems are weak, where they don't have the ability to put people on ventilators? Mortality rates are going to be stunning if the spread is anything like what we've seen so far in some of the in, in China and, and Italy and, and elsewhere. But uh, but but your 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 original point there, Stu, this is it. I mean, this is the defining inequality in the world today. And one of the hard parts of it, and this uh, gets a little bit technical, but one of the things that to me is so interesting about the electricity system is that it depends on integrity in society. You can't, we can't just tell African countries, well, you need to fix your electric grid. They have to have societies in which theft is kept to a minimum. You, theft is the enemy of light. If there's no integrity in the system, and we saw this in Iraq after Saddam Hussein was captured and killed, electricity theft went through the roof. So these societies have to bring, they have to build grids that sustain themselves and pay for themselves. What do you see as a risk of 
you know, I think one of the, another risk that we're facing in particular here in the United States is we've got a southern border which, uh, where we have Mexico and several other countries that have, again, really not done much when it comes to fighting the coronavirus. Um, this is a little bit different, um, but I think it plays directly into uh, your sort of thesis here when it comes to access to electricity means wealth. And wealth, again, gets such a bad name because people think of it as like, oh, well, you want rich people to line their pockets with their stocks. It's not that. This is we're talking about people having access to health care. We're talking about people having access to innovation. We're having people, uh, you know, who have uh, the ability to travel, to move, to be able to get to the hospital and that hospital to keep its lights on when they're trying to do surgery or run a ventilator. Well, I think it's even more fundamental uh, than that. And in talking about this book, and and I've also uh, produced a film that's going to be out in June called Juice, How Electricity Explains the World. I wrote a book and did a film at the same time. I don't recommend it. It's gonna, <laughs> it was a lot of work. But it's more fundamental than even thinking about healthcare. It's fundamental to the lives of women and girls. And um, that it, without electricity, they're slaves to the pump, the stove, and the wash tub. And one of the things I do talk about in the book that I'm quite proud of, and people in America forget about it, but the architects, some of the key architects of the New Deal, and in particular for rural electrification in America, uh, Sam Rayburn was one of them, the, the speaker, the longest serving speaker of the House in U.S. history. Um, he and a few of his colleagues pushed for rural electrification because they were concerned about farm women and the and the the fact that farm women and it was one of uh, Lyndon Johnson's concerns. <clears throat> Burton Wheeler um, was another who was one of the architects. Uh, 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 George Norris from Nebraska. They were concerned about women and girls on the farm and in rural ranches and the lack of opportunity that they had and effectively the slave labor that they were forced to do, hauling water by hand, washing clothes by hand. That electricity is fundamental to the 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 welfare of women and girls around the world. All right, let me bring it back to um, uh, the U.S. here and and sure. talk about the oil sector a little bit because <clears throat> you know, it, it, it's taking a beating. Um, we've seen this sort of uh, <laughs> like like no like no other time, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, we've seen the back and forth between Russia and Saudi Arabia. Now we're kind of getting involved in this. What you know, when we come out of coronavirusville uh, here. Is there an energy sector to come out to? Because it seems like right now it's being devastated. There's no doubt it's being devastated. And uh, I live in Austin and the Railroad Commission, the Texas Railroad Commission met today and discussed the possibility of imposing allowables, that is restrictions on oil production in Texas. Well, this hasn't happened since the 1970s, since 1973, in fact. Um, but I wrote a piece recently and, and published it in Real Clear Energy, um, and I talked about this, in fact, that I think that what is likely going to, excuse me, is going to have to happen is that all the major oil producing con- countries are going to have to agree to limit production to bring any kind of rationality into the global oil market. Um, I don't think the U.S. industry is just going to be completely destroyed. It always, you know, it always has these boom and bust cycles. But the bust now is unlike any that we've seen, because not only do we have a dramatic oversupply, we have a dramatic reduction in demand. Um, You know, uh, gasoline consumption is at 50 year lows. I mean, this is unprecedented. So um, the the shockwave is going to be felt for for years, maybe even a decade or more to come. Yeah, it was really multiple things at once, which is why it's, uh, you know, so, so scary. I, I will say that just as a, I don't know, just from a philosophical standpoint, I'm, I'm nervous about 
talking about production cuts and getting into an OPEC-like situation. These are not things I, I am usually friendly to. Can you can you sell me on this a little bit? Well, it's a difficult sell. I'll <laughs> let me be clear. I mean, because for now, for decades, the, you know, American politicians have been, you know, cursing foreign oil and the dangers of foreign oil. I get that. But the reality is we live in a global economy. And the reality is that every country views their oil and gas industry as strategic and as one that um, is a source of jobs and revenue and so on. But here's the thing that's different, Stu, is that the shale revolution and the technology revolution in oil and gas has made the idea of peak oil just completely, I mean, it's irrelevant. Yeah. In fact, it, what, what we are facing now is not just a world of a, abundant energy, but super abundant energy. And that that is the reality that we are going to be living with for a long time to come. And so this idea of putting, uh, let's call it what it is, price fixing, supply fixing, <laughs> it's a hard, it's, it's a difficult concept to get your mind around, but it, the oil market is not a free market. I mean, uh, who are the counterparties when we're looking around the world? Well, it's a Saudi prince who likes to cut up his opponents and ship them home, or <laughs> another guy who is the head of Russia who likes to poison his opponents with pol polonium. So, uh, you know, this is not a free and fair trade situation. It's not an, a, exactly a level playing field, but this is the way the world works. Uh, we've got about 30 more seconds here, uh, Robert. Sure. Talk to the person who's working in the uh, oil business right now who's not sure if they're coming back to a job. What, what should they be expecting over the next few months? Ooh, man, Stu, that's a you're giving me a hard 30 seconds here. <laughs> um, look, the oil industry is going to come back. Uh, how soon? I don't know. But this is a tremendously uh, important industry to the United States. It's, a com it's important to every consumer. We all uh, take oil and gas for granted. But this industry is going to it's going to go through some hard times, but it's going to come back. All right. Well, if we had more time, I would ask you to play us a song. I see multiple instruments behind you, but we'll have to get to that next time. Oh, yeah. Time. I, I, I would kill. Yeah, I would kill on that, Stu. You would. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd have your job. All right. There you go. I like it. All right. Robert Price, the book is A Question of Power, Electricity and the Wealth of Nations. The documentary is coming up uh, in June as well. Robert, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks a million, Stu. All right. Back in a second. If there's one thing we've learned as a country from moments of great crisis, it's that the spirit of looking out for one another can't be restricted to our homes or our workplaces or our neighborhoods or our houses of worship. It also has to be reflected in our national government. The kind of leadership that's guided by knowledge and experience, honesty and humility, empathy and grace. That kind of leadership doesn't just belong in our state capitals and mayor's offices. It belongs in the White House. And that's why I'm so proud to endorse Joe Biden for president of the United States. Lack luster. That's what you call lackluster. It lacks luster. That is one of the worst endorsements. I've ever seen in my life. You could tell he doesn't believe it. How long have we been talking about this? He could have given Biden the presidency in the middle of the primary and had a, he would have had a much easier road. Instead, he waits till not only after the entire primary is obviously over. He waits for Bernie Sanders to drop out and then for Bernie Sanders to endorse Joe Biden. 
we have an opportunity for someone who wins a nomination to have basically a one person election. You get to pick the person out of all the people in the entire United States that are, is the most qualified to run the country if you happen to go away for whatever reason. I don't know. You decide to take a you go on like a hangover style bender and you just disappear. Whatever the reason is, who's the most qualified person other than yourself? Yourself. You took uh, Joe Biden and it's taken you this long to endorse him. It's embarrassing, although I understand why. I mean, he obviously is showing all sorts of, uh, uh, you know, operating system issues. He needs to be rebooted. You know, he's like the guy when you take out a laptop from inside your closet and you open it up and you open up the word processor and you start typing and nothing really happens. And then you get about four sentences in and it spits out all the words at the same time. That's Joe Biden. And you realize there's like all sorts of misspellings. Maybe a couple of words are out of the out of order. That's him right now, man. It's hard to watch. And I wish I wish it wasn't this way. Um, I will say that he's getting a heck of a treatment from The New York Times right now in this Tara Reid situation. Again, I will give The Times a little bit of credit that they're the only people who have even acknowledged it existed. I mean, and nobody else is writing anything. So the fact that they wrote something about it, I guess, is impressive. The story is uh, not particularly strong, however. We, we dealt with that yesterday. Go back and watch yesterday's uh, program on YouTube, which, by the way, you can find all our shows on YouTube for free whenever you want. Click the little subscribe button. And if that's not going to do much for you, go to the little bell. Click all notifications so you can always know when we re- release a new uh, video. But uh, I love this. There are a couple of questions here. Um, why not, uh, they ask uh, the executive editor of the New York Times, why didn't you cover the issue of Tara Reid's accusation on Joe Biden on March 25th when it came out? They waited 19 days to report on it. The answer from the executive editor says, lots of people covered it at breaking news at the time. Now, first of all, it's not true. Conservative media did it. A couple of other people may have had blurbs about it. It was widely ignored. Um, And I just thought that nobody other than The Intercept was actually doing the reporting to help people figure out what to make of it. So the New York Times is ceding its position as, you know, the, the paper of record to The Intercept. Does anyone believe that that's the reason they did this? I'm going to go with no. Uh, I love this part, though. Um, This is uh, on Twitter. Um, They were uh, publishing this uh, long tweet. We talked about it yesterday as well. Why did they change it? They deleted the the end of the story and said, hey, you know, what's the uh, what's the issue? Let's see if I can find the uh, quote. Here it is. Uh, I want to ask about uh, some edits that were made after publication. The deletion of the second half of the sentence. The Times found no pattern of sexual misconduct by Mr. Biden beyond the hugs beyond the hugs, kisses, and touching that women previously said made them uncomfortable. Why did you do that? Listen to this admission. This is an incredible moment in the history of journalism. It's actually at that level. The only reason I say that is because they're actually admitting the thing that we always say they do. And now they're going to admit it for you. They're going to put it on a silver platter for you. They want you to know why they deleted that sentence. Are you ready? Even though a lot of us, including me, had looked at it before the story went into the paper, I think that the campaign thought that the phrasing was awkward and made it look like there were other instances in which he had been accused of sexual misconduct. And that's not what the sentence was intended to say. Well, it kind of was intended to say that because that's kind of what it said. However, I can understand the distinction they're trying to draw there between, you know, kind of like creepy grandpa as opposed to Chester the molester like there's a line there and I understand what they're trying to to walk however to just delete it without uh, comment is a little ridiculous 
Um, they ask, why not explain why you deleted it? We didn't think it was a factual mistake. I thought it was an awkward phrasing issue that could be read different ways, and it wasn't something factual we were correcting. So I didn't think it was necessary. Unbelievable. The campaign, the Joe Biden campaign, is calling up and getting the New York Times article about accusations against him changed. And I will point out, when they ran this article about Tara Reid, it was pushed back in the paper, was not well done. I mean, no offense to the journalists here, because I'm sure they're wonderful people. But it was, uh, you know, it was like a police blotter. This person accused this, this person accused this. It was just not, it was not a well done article. It was boring and for no reason spent half the article on Donald Trump. I mean, it was, you know, it was ridiculous. But the fact that they, that they, they are actually admitting that the campaign got the article changed and at the same time, they gave a wide open platform for an op-ed from uh, Joe Biden to talk about how he's going to save the world from coronavirus. It's a bad chapter in New York Times history, and there's been a few of them. I don't know if you noticed. Back in a second. Love talking to David Harris Jr. Uh, he's got a great eye for the, you know, figuring out a, the truth of a situation, breaking it down, a strong moral compass. Uh, and he is the author of Why I Couldn't Stay Silent, the host of the David J. Harris Jr. Show. David, thanks for coming on the program, man. Been a while. Absolutely, Stu. Great to be with you, my brother. I'm uh, excited to see you having your own show, man. It's, it's awesome. Well, thanks. I appreciate you coming on it. Um, let's talk about this crazy time we're in right now. Um, you know, it's it's been uh, one of the, you know, the most amazing month I think any of us have ever been through. Um, looking at the White House in, in particular, how do you how do you see Donald Trump's performance so far through this? Well, I appreciate the fact that he is bringing his message directly to the American people, uh, sideswiping the nonstop biased liberal mainstream media <laughs> that continues to just try to do everything and anything that they can to uh, to bash this president. So I think that he's handling it as well as he can. Um, with with who's surrounding him. I definitely have my concerns about some of the individuals that are around him. I know there's been some more things coming to light lately as to Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks. There's uh, a lot of information that's swirling on the uh, on, on social media and on YouTube about those individuals and what what they may have, uh, what agenda they may have uh, with what they're doing to uh, to give advice to the president. But notwithstanding that, uh, besides that, I think that what the president's currently doing uh, in handling this crisis is uh, is amazing to see his truth and transparency and just bringing his truth to the American people. And uh, we're we're complying and doing what we need to do to just follow what the protocols are, are to hope that this doesn't turn into something that was like the Spanish flu 100 years ago. Yeah, it's really been interesting to watch. I mean, I, I, I've I've watched. Uh... Uh, you know, the president navigate w- what is an, an impossible situation, right? I mean, then no one could have possibly known walking into, a, you know, presidency that this is going to be the type of thing you're going to be dealing with. And of course, you know, this is a guy who more than anything in, in the world wants to have the economy open and raging. Like this is what he's based his presidency on and the strength of it. Um, so to see him say, you know what? Yes, we need to shut the uh, economy down for six weeks is quite a statement um, and it's quite a thing to see. He must really view this as incredibly serious. Yeah, he must. Uh, again, the information that, that he was getting from Dr. Burks and from Dr. Fauci was that it could be one to two million people could die if we didn't begin to mitigate uh, the contagion by self-isolating. 
and the hospitals weren't ready for the influx like we've seen in New York and California and the constant need and ask for, for more ventilators and masks. It's, it's something that nobody could uh, even conceive, I think, of, of dealing with. But the way that the mainstream media is dealing with this compared to the H1N1 is definitely suspect. You know, they gave Obama a lot of uh, a lot of leeway. They didn't treat it like a pandemic. Uh, of course, Obama waited until there was a thousand deaths uh, in our country before he did anything about it. But uh, we didn't have to shut the economy down. So, you know, the president didn't. There's no way he could have foresaw going into this. And I actually just had on my podcast, uh, David J. Harris Jr. podcast, I had Bishop Harry Jackson, who was the uh, bishop that was in the Oval Office on Friday, on Good Friday, and spoke a message of encouragement and prayer for not only the president, but for our country. And it was quite insightful, the change in demeanor that Bishop Jackson, who's known the president for the past four years, uh, there was a, quite a change in demeanor that he noticed from the president uh, before this pandemic and then uh, and, and even just as soon as just this last week. So it, it's, pretty, it's pretty intense what we're dealing with. Um, and I hope that um, more truth starts to come out uh, mm-hmm. as far as maybe the truth threat to this this virus. You know, again, it just makes sense to me that we've heard from the beginning that the individuals with immunocompromised uh, systems are the most vulnerable. And so to to mitigate should should start with those individuals self-isolating and staying away, um, you know, and staying in their homes and let the rest of us get back to work. And I, I hope that's what we're gonna start to hear from the president. I know he's about to announce his new uh, council, bringing the economy back council. So I'm excited to see what, what the direction he wants to take. And with the flattening of the curve that we've seen so far in New York and in uh, California, uh, the lower number of deaths, I think that now's the time to do something exactly along those lines. Yeah, and I think it does seem to be where he's heading. Um, and I think that's positive and needed. I mean, we can't do this forever. Um, let me dig in one more time here on on the way this has gone. I, I think there's been a split among conservatives who one side have seen kind of how how I viewed it has been impossible situation. I think he's done a, a really good job walking a very difficult line here. Um, no one wants the economy Absolutely. shut down. Uh, nobody wants it shut down, uh, you know, less than Donald Trump. Um, but he's doing this because he believes it's the right thing for people and he wants to keep as many people alive as possible, plain, plain and simple. There's the other side that yeah. I th- think looks at this and says, well, you know, look, you know, maybe I'm uh, uh, much more skeptical of the negative effects here. And I don't like Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks. And the fact that Trump is listening to them is a knock on his leadership. I, I don't see it that way. Do you see it that way? Or have you noticed that on social media and, and people who are listening to the show? Oh, I definitely have noticed it. I know some friends of mine in the conservative movement that I won't name, name name names, but have very large platforms think that this entire thing is a sham and have been calling it that from the beginning. I don't go that far. I definitely see that this uh, was something that uh, we needed to address in a, in a, in a little harsher manner. Um, but I believe that because of the, the guidance of Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burke, that the president is getting information, you know, then he's making the best decisions he can with the information that he's been given. Look, the mainstream media is trying to knock him and liberals are trying to knock him, saying that he didn't do enough quick enough. He closed down the ports of entry from China back on, on January 31st. Mm. Uh, Dr. Fauci, I think on January 21st, said that this is not a big deal. It's, it's just like the flu. Uh, so for so much of the mainstream media to try to say that the president didn't do anything, I think that he instinctively was making some really good decisions that, that paid off big for our country. And I think that uh, I think that as, as fast as we've gotten into this, 
I really believe that the president's going to try to get us out of this uh, so we can avoid total economic ruin uh, just as fast. So I, I have faith in the president and in the truth coming to light and in him making the right decisions for our country. Yeah, and I have liked how uh, Fauci and Burks have both complimented Trump in the way he's handled this and given him a lot of credit for stepping up in these in these tough moments. Before before we go, and I have a couple more minutes. We got to get into we now have a nominee. Joe Biden is going to be looks like the the guy who's running against uh, Donald Trump. Uh, he's got his own set of uh, apparently a new Me Too accusation that the media is handling totally differently than we saw with Brett Kavanaugh. How do you see this Trump Biden match going down? Well, I think that Donald Trump is going to absolutely demolish <laughs> Joe Biden when it comes to debate time. I don't see any way, uh, shape or form that Biden would be able to handle it. And then, you know, I don't like going jumping down conspiracy theories, but we got to understand people conspire to do evil things all the time. That's all a conspiracy is, is people trying to get away with evil stuff. Uh, y- you think about the timing for this pandemic hitting our country and the way that the mainstream media and the left has been pushing for uh, for this as a pandemic and treating it like such and self-isolation, I don't think we're going to have to see too much of Joe Biden. I mean, hopefully we we do get to see Donald Trump take him on head to head. But I honestly believe that Joe is not well in the head. I mean, he's obviously suffering and showing symptoms of somebody that's battling dementia uh, or some kind of serious mental breakdown. And uh, it's it's a sad thing to see. So I don't know why the DNC would be putting him through this. I don't know why Joe Biden's family would allow him Mm. to go through this if he truly is battling a mental disorder. But if you look at tapes from 10 years ago, five years ago, uh, he wasn't as fumbling, bumbling, hard to put two sentences together as he is right now. So it's a very interesting time. There's no way that Joe Biden holds a candle against uh, our president in any debate or in any election. Yeah, I mean, it is pretty hard to watch with Biden. I mean, it does feel like he's really struggling to get through the very basics of this. Uh, and, and this does. I mean, obviously, nobody wants a pandemic on either side, but it's like it, it does actually fit what he needs to do. If, if you're if you're advising Joe Biden right now, you say, stay out of the way. Don't say a lot of stuff and hope nobody yeah. notices that you can't speak anymore. <laughs> it's kind of the strategy of the yeah. campaign. Yeah, it is. I think they're I think they must have an alternative strategy if they think that they can get Joe Biden in, if they can get, uh, you know, the, the United States of America, all of us to do voter uh, vote by mail and then ballot harvest uh, like so many people have been already indicted for. Uh, and we knew that there was a lot of that that happened in the 2016 election. If they for some reason think that they can get Joe Biden in, I think and, and he does get in, which I don't think he will. But their hope is if he gets in his VP will probably wind up taking over as president because Joe, I'm sure, will have to bow out for medical reasons if he was to to win election. So think mm-hmm. about that as the American people. The Democrats are willing to actually sacrifice somebody to just try to get somebody that nobody voted for, that didn't make it to the primaries, uh, to become the president of the United States just so they can get rid of Donald Trump. This is a weird time. And this is going to be one of the most consequential VP picks uh, in American history. Uh, David Jarris, J. Harris Jr., we have to leave it there. The book is Why I Couldn't Stay Silent. Podcast is David J. Harris uh, Podcast. David, thanks so much for doing this, and uh, let's love to have you on again at some point. Absolutely, Stu. Thank you so much, my brother. Have a good one. All right, you too. Back in a second. I was looking for optimism, hoping to stay under 2,000 deaths, and um, unfortunately, 
We're at our highest level ever, well over 2,000. So let's look at this wonderful picture of a guy jogging on the beach, about to get arrested because you're not allowed to jog on the beach anymore. And then look at him take off and run away from the officer. He escapes and he runs for the gates. An incredible victory for freedom. Good night, America.